Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm Matt Lynch, a co-host of the OnScript Podcast with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. We are five, just like the Torah or the five books of Psalms or the Gospels, if you include Isaiah in there, or the feeding of the 5,000. These things are not a coincidence, and I hope you, you realize that there's something really special happening here. But even more special is who I have here to help introduce this episode with me, and that is Abby Lynch, to whom I am married. Hey, Abs. Hey, Matt. <laughs> um, do you want to introduce this episode? So, today, Matt will be interviewing our good friend, Dr. Mary Hom. She's been our friend for more than a decade. She is full of life and full of love and good insights, and we really hope you enjoy her insights today. Cool. And um, if you have the wherewithal, please make sure that you share this episode with your neighbors, the barista at your favorite coffee shop. You could send a copy all email about this episode to your work colleagues or share it on your LinkedIn page or something like that. There are lots of ways to spread the word. Pinterest. Pinterest. Oh, yeah. Good point. Put it on your Pinterest page. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Good reminder. And uh, thanks so much for all of you who support us financially. Um, You really make this happen. So thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm here today with Mary Hom, who is the author of The Characterization of the Assyrians and Isaiah, and now The Characterization of an Empire, The Portrayal of the Assyrians in Kings and Chronicles. Mary's a good friend of mine, and this is her second time on the podcast. So if you've never listened to the first podcast, go back through our archives somewhere, and you'll find the previous episode where she was here And Mary, it's really good to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. Um, Mary, you are jet-lagged a bit right now. Uh, Oh, very. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Mary has come all the way from California, so that's eight hours different. Uh, But she's graciously agreed to do the podcast, so thank you. You're welcome. And um, and you you come over here periodically because you do research at Cambridge, where you did your PhD. Mm -hmm. And do you want to give our listeners maybe just a feel for the kinds of things that happen when you do research at Cambridge and the the commu- scholarly community there and what that's like? Um, well, I can only speak really in terms of my own experience for biblical studies, so I want to clarify that because um, I think we have a very special situation. Um, I know I'm a little biased on that, but I think we have a very special situation in Cambridge uh, as biblical scholars, being that Tyndall House Library is there. Uh, they have on-site housing available, and with that, you have sort of a temporary community. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, by its nature, there's a transitoriness about it uh, because, you know, people graduate and move on. Um, mm-hmm. But so often people come back. Uh, so it's just, it's good to know that uh, you've got colleagues when you already arrive. Um, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I tend to be one of the more... Uh, 
I'm perceived as one of the more social people there. I don't know if I really am. So sometimes it's a few too many colleagues for me. Yeah. Um, but I know that's rare. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to other world-class libraries in the world where you don't necessarily have that community once you step in. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the library itself is also, I think, uh, very well set up for short-term and long-term scholars whom they mm-hmm. accept uh, to work there. Like, you could literally just crawl to some of these books mm-hmm. that, when I'm back in California, take hours, mm-hmm. half a day sometimes, to drive to, <laughs> to get to the nearest copy in the world, mm. whereas why, to and no why, else, why would you, there. And why would you crawl to them in particular, as opposed to walking? Well, most of the time I do walk. Okay. But if, like, if you're so worn out from... <laughs> uh, you're, you're on like a research binge and you can't stand up anymore. You just crawl. When I'm on a research binge, I have so much energy. I don't crawl. Uh-huh. Uh, but there are you times. Float. I, <laughs> people say sometimes I bounce off the walls there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know I'm not quite normal in that respect. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of joy with this. I have a lot of joy. Um, but there are times when uh, I like to be at the li- in the library late at night where um, there aren't many people around. It's very quiet. And um, just find some time just to just browse some books and uh, sit on the floor. And then, and then I actually will like maybe crawl a few feet to just the next book <laughs> yeah. and just lie, lay some books on the ground and uh, just, just enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, um, so you're based in California and you did your PhD at Cambridge. We did, what we didn't talk about was how you got into biblical studies. I know we covered a bit of that before on the podcast, but maybe just, help our listeners out by talking about your journey into the study, the academic study of the Bible and how that fits into the larger picture for you. Wow. That's really interesting. I got into the academic study of the Bible pretty much out of my passion for the Bible and a sense of calling to pursue an academic education in that. Having said that, I like what our mutual seminary mentor, Mm -hmm. Matt, um, often would tell me, he probably told you this as well, Mm -hmm. which is that life is not a one-hurdle race. So uh, just because God calls us to one thing doesn't mean that all the rest of your life is necessarily going to be cut out to be exactly on that path or that way. Um, I think it's important to remember it's about relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So... At that time in that season, it was clear that Cambridge was the next step, pursuing a PhD, mm-hmm. um, just getting more intellectual tools, um, research tools, that kind of thing was important. Um, yeah, but it, you know, what got me even to that point was my love for the Bible. Yeah, and and so as you gain those tools, and I know uh, this is probably also part of your journey at Regent as well. So Mary and I. Um, both went to graduate school at Regent College in Vancouver, and we had the same THM supervisor, Phil Long, and and so there there was a strong emphasis on narrative approaches to the Bible at Regent, and then you carried on in that vein at Cambridge as well. So the you know I was thinking about the the two title the titles of your two books on the Assyrians have to do with characterization. So. What is it about that concept of characterization that drew you in? And for for those who aren't familiar with biblical studies, 
uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the uh, narrative approaches to the Bible and what that looks like in practice. Okay, well, let's go. I'm going to go with the second question first. Yep, sounds good. It's just it's a broader one. Yeah, um, I hate two-part questions, and oh, I just did that. Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you want to change the first one while you're thinking about the second one. Um, so narrative approaches to the Bible. I mean, uh, I like to say that I'm an Old Testament Hebrew Bible narratologist, which is just a fancy way of saying I like old stories mm-hmm. and understanding how they tick. So that's what I explore. Um, there are many aspects to modern narratives, and in the ancient Near East, there are also many aspects to narratives back then. Some, there is a lot of overlap with what we've got today, but there's also some distinctive um, ways in which they structured things or communicated things, um, or even ways in which they perceived um, communication, character, um, the world, (laughs) all that, that are conveyed in ways that are, frankly, foreign to a modern Western mind. Mm-hmm. So, ancient Near Eastern narratology, in general, looks at these factors, and then um, one would branch out from that and get a little more interdisciplinary into how um, the culture at that time, the economic conditions, even maybe the geopolitical, you know, mm-hmm. social conditions, all that stuff, um, might um, kind of interweave with that and have like kind of a symbiotic relationship with some of those things and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, your, your book on your recent book on the characterization of an empire, uh, brings together both narrative approaches to the Bible, but also post-colonial theory as well. So that's another piece of the puzzle for it's you. It's more right? like just a bit of imperialism. It's not, okay. it's not, uh, to be fair and respectful to proper post-colonial studies, mm-hmm. scholars, it is not a post-colonial study that I've done. done. Um, it's more just a nod of respect in that direction, mm. um, recognizing I've had some influence by some of their thoughts and mm-hmm. just calling what is relevant for this book mm-hmm. in some of the analysis. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I think, um, so a nod in that direction is is probably more than a lot of studies give. And, and so um, w- what does a nod to the fact that Israel was a small player in a larger world stage where um, powers like the Assyrians and the Babylonians are roaring around the ancient Near East? What, what How does that affect our actual reading of the Bible? You know, from a minority perspective, um, what is the empire that is over them, that is often oppressing them? Mm-hmm. Um, what is their perspective through their sacred texts? And with that, you know, what do they believe is the divine's perspective of all this and what their um, place is in that, what their role is in that? Does that affect their identity? Um, mm-hmm. What does that mean in terms of relationship to the, to this big other mm-hmm. and and even is the big other we assume it's that the empire is a big other is the big other always a big other mm-hmm. are there times when identity mixes or certain elements of identity mix um and then what is this what does this mean for their relationship with god mm. 
yeah, those are yeah, things some, to think some, about. Sometimes, uh, and this comes up maybe more in studies on Isaiah, which is your first book, but um, you know, there, there is a, a question sometimes the degree to which perceptions of that uh, overlord, the, the Assyrian Empire, affect the Israelites' conception of their own God. So do you see that at play as well in Kings and Chronicles, where, where they're looking at uh, the Assyrians and ascribing, and, and, you know, they have a certain perception of Assyrian power, and then wanting to counter that in some way by ascribing those same powers to Yahweh. Is that, do you see that kind of thing happening, or is that not really the, the way that the characterization maybe maps onto Yahweh in Kings and Chronicles? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think we see that a little more in Isaiah, Yeah. Um, even with key vocabulary that's used uh, to describe the Assyrians suddenly, um, all being used to refer to Yahweh. When I'm talking about Isaiah 30, I know we're not talking about that book right now. That's fine. Hey, <laughs> we can go there. With, with Kings and Chronicles, uh, it's... Um, well, I, I think the authors of Kings and Chronicles do have an awareness of that dynamic that you talk about, but their response to it is different. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, I'm generalizing here. Um, I think it's more a case of them resisting very admirably and strongly. Like mm-hmm. I, it's, it's amazing, actually, how much they minimize the Assyrian presence. So mm-hmm. them resisting the influence of the... Assyrians and even mm. resisting the undeniable on the ground reality of the presence of the Assyrians mm. um, in certain events. Yeah, that's interesting. So how? Um, so in other words, they're proposing a different meta narrative. Mm. So, in, in, um, unpack that idea a little bit. That sounds so. So they're well, <laughs> so so so, so, the, so the idea is that this, the Assyrians are are very present in the in northern some kingdom in some situations. Yeah, and. And the narrative basically glosses over that or... Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. So Mm -hmm. I talk about that Mm -hmm. um, in the different chapters in this book, Mm -hmm. in what I call book number two. Yeah. Uh, So that's why I talk about not only instances in which the Assyrians are explicitly in the text, but I also talk about instances in which the Assyrians would be expected to appear in the text. Um, but they are either strongly minimized or just not present. Yeah. So that silence, that omission, mm-hmm. also says something. Yeah. So um, is it because for the author of Kings or the editor of Kings, who's typically called the Deuteronomistic historian, is it because for that um, historian, it's categories like idolatry and respect you know, the treatment of the high places that that is really the lens through which they're looking at history? Or is it because, do you think they want to kind of deliberately downplay the significance of the empire? Because it's not them. That's not the reason that they had all their troubles. It's because of their own disloyalty to Yahweh in some way. Yeah, the latter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think they've, there, there is in Kings a reflective element Obviously, it's more in Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think it's a prayerful element. So, you know, when I say reflection, I mean, I reflect, you know, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with Chronicles, I mean, when I say reflection regarding Chronicles, we're talking about years, right? It's like yeah. decades. It's like, yeah. um, longer than that. And so with Kings, there is a reflective element. I'm not, But that doesn't mean it's been like super long. Mm-hmm. 
So um, is that is that a kind of resistance strategy? So yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Like, I know what you mean. I, um, I guess like um, yes, but it's almost like um, it it's to the point where it is it, it is a resistance strategy. But as I was when I was looking at these texts, it's it's like especially the text of omission, as you may want to call mm-hmm. them. It's to the point where they have trained their focus to be so much on Yahweh mm. and their understanding of his purposes and his ways mm. that they just don't see the powers that ultimately don't matter in the end mm-hmm. as needing yeah. mention in the text. Got you know? it. So, so it's, a, they, it's you, it, you, yeah, I see it's an unusual focus that mm-hmm. is reflected by the biblical authors and but this could also be why they are the biblical authors because they had that kind of sharp like focus laser on, focus yeah on Yahweh. yeah so yeah. so it, it's um so i've done research on monotheism and i and i've talked before about different modes of monotheizing one of them is by direct confrontation and that's like you have in second isaiah where you have all these polemics against the gods where they're in the the line of fire and the author is attacking them mocking mockingly. Um, so that's one mode of monotheizing. The other mode is by omission and by just simply ignoring them as a factor. So the first chapter in the Bible, the creation story shows Yahweh creating or yeah, shows the Lord creating the world and simply doesn't mention any other deities and, and the sun, moon and stars, all these things are, are, are just facts of the created order, but they're they don't they're not ascribed to any powers. And so it's a kind of monotheistic world, but there there's no attack on the gods because they're not even a factor in the equation. Yeah, ancient so, Near Eastern ancient Near Eastern mental emotional boundaries. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, I guess so. So so that's interesting. So you have in psychological boundaries. Right. So you have in Kings and Chronicles then a, a mode of in, of maybe non-engagement with the empires uh that's that's the byproduct of a clear focus on Yahweh and I, the issues around idolatry and injustice and so on and and then the Assyrians just kind of like where they're needed in the story they mm-hmm. they show up mm-hmm. so okay um and then we are speaking generally i mean there yeah, are times yeah. when you get more of the confrontative kind of thing happening right Okay, so so you've you've done your work on the the Assyrians, the portrayal of the Assyrians in in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah. So you've you you've wrapped up that segment of your research, and, and then you've got uh, another article just came out on a very different topic. So Finger of God. Ah, uh, yes. So what's the backstory to that one? Finger of God. So. Uh... With the Vedas Testamentum one last year, as you may recall, I thought that was going to be the shortest article I would write in my life. The Finger of God article ended up being a three-day article, but that also includes an (laughs) all-nighter. The backstory on that is um, I um, had the privilege of being part of a student Bible study at Cambridge, and we are going through the book of Luke. We are discussing Luke chapter 11 got to verse 20, and there's that reference to the finger of God. One of our participants, Mr. Patrick McClure, 
suggested that there was a connection between Daniel 5 and Luke 11.20. I thought he was crazy. Uh, Wait a second. The, the Luke 11 finger of God reference, I'm trying to think of what that is. Should I read it? Yeah, Should sure. That would help. So, bearing in oh, mind... Oh, oh what, yeah, yeah. The finger of God has come upon you. The kingdom. Mm-hmm, mm, the NIV here. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So... I just assumed I knew because I had done my homework on this before Bible study that the references, the allusions mm-hmm. uh, to the finger of God were going back to um, Exodus and Deuteronomy, that sort of standard knowledge in New Testament studies. And when Patrick said Daniel 5, I just thought, uh, I'm going to do the polite British thing here and just ignore him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, other people in the group were just thinking, all right, this is strange. There's no way this could be possible. Um, but long story short, Patrick somehow managed to convince us um, that there could be and very likely was a connection. Hmm. And as we looked at it more, it not only made sense, but it really opened up the text to us more. Hmm. And just what's going on there with um, the finger of God and the eminence of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, you know, so Daniel 5, right, you've got, um, you've got a kingdom that no one has imagined before in terms of its size and its power, mm. like literally at your doorstep. Mm. So when the, this hand with these fingers appears, mm-hmm. this hand of God, these fingers and all that appears, it's, it's that signal, it's that sign. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus like makes a little reference to that sign mm. and says, now you know, hey, a kingdom's coming. It's that same sense of like something beyond what you could even imagine. It's like that close, that much upon you kind of thing. And man, that was just yeah. so powerful. And that yeah, came out of a cool. Bible study. Hmm. And I thought, but that's kind of strange. I don't remember seeing this in the things I read in the 11 hours that I prepped for this Bible study. Hmm. So I go to Tyndale House where I can just feast on the library and I just start <clears throat> pulling commentaries off the shelf. And I'm like, okay, the top 10 Luke commentaries that I would like mm-hmm. look at to find this in, I'm going to just pull them off and I, I'll probably find it somewhere in there. I didn't mm-hmm. find it in the top 10. I'm like, I'll do the next 10. And then I was like, then I just started looking through just about every Luke commentary that I thought was legit. Mm-hmm. And then I was going through the articles. And I was like, wow, I think we're onto something. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was just on, I was just on a drive on this. And the funny thing was um, the two guys in the curls next to me at Tyndall house, uh, they're my buddies. And uh, they did a wise and healthy thing, which was to take their wives on vacation mm-hmm. at that time. And they let me use their desks when they were gone. So I had two large desks to spread all these books and articles, um, to just kind of my visual ways of organizing like my thoughts and what's going on here. And um, I was like, all right, we're going to get this. We're just going to get to the bottom of this. And we're going to do this before these guys get back from vacation. Mm-hmm which I think is going to be in about three days, <laughs> which is also why I pulled the all-nighter. Um, I, I, I don't think I've ever pulled an all-nighter. Are you kidding me? Before, like working on anything. Like I, I just can't function. Yeah, you, you get in a, a kind of adrenaline rush or... Yeah. Yeah, how do you... I mean, yeah. it was like five in the morning and yeah, even I Even my adrenaline it. runs out. I just can't do that. I, it, was, it was adrenaline. Like I, mm. it was five in the morning and I had finished... I had finally finished this three-day article, right? And I mm-hmm. remember I walked out of Tyndale House and 
I watched the sunrise. <laughs> and then I <laughs> spent the next two days recovering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I talk about it. Is it okay if I mention this bit? We have this footnote yeah. in here at the very beginning um, where we want to um, thank um, Keith Morrison and Jonathan Moo for their encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, so while this was what I call the three-day article, which neither of us as a New Testament scholar mm-hmm. <laughs> ended up writing um, and were graced to be able to um, publish a Novum Testamentum. Mm-hmm. While it was a three-day article, uh, really the story goes back further than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, Mr. Morrison, Keith Morrison, was Patrick's Sunday school teacher in high school. Mm. And uh, I just love how the seeds for Patrick's thoughts on Daniel go back Mm. to him being in Mr. Morrison's high school Sunday school class in Mm. small town, Kentucky. Yeah. And Mr. Morrison just being faithful and taking the time Mm. to be obedient. You know, Mm -hmm. he felt it was, you know, it was what God wanted him to do. So he's like, I'll be obedient in this Mm -hmm. and I'll teach high school Sunday school class. And, they did the book of Daniel and he even wanted to, you know, teach leadership skills to the guys and also help them um, have an appreciation for what goes into teaching mm-hmm. and preparation. So he asked Patrick to lead some of the studies. Hmm. So, um, so, so that gave him a, a, a deeper familiarity with Daniel. Yes. That then yes. years and years later paid off in giving him a sense that, hey, I know there's also a finger of God moment in the book of Daniel that there might be a connection here and let's explore that together. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's a cool story. So, so Mr. Morrison, what's, so he's in, he's in Kentucky. What's he up to now? He's still in Corbin, Kentucky right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I asked right now he works in the IT department of a financial company Mm -hmm. still in Corbin. Um, At the time that he was teaching that Sunday school class that Patrick was in, um, his formal occupation was as a technician mm-hmm. on copier and fax machines. Mm-hmm. He has no formal biblical education. Mm-hmm. In fact, he only has a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, he was a Sunday school teacher for 10 years. Um, he is aware of five young men who did enter the ministry because of their time in that class, I guess the things really? that came out of that, the growth that came wow. out of that. And now that's what he's aware of too, right? He oh, didn't even know goodness. this was coming yeah. out. Yeah. You know? So, and it, it's just like, you know, I, <laughs> just this faithful call, mm-hmm. this, this faithful response to the call to be obedient just in wherever God has planted you. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Well, let's, let's hear, I'd like to maybe, it'd be cool if you could share a little bit more about, what you're up to now when you're not doing biblical scholarship in Tyndale House Library. So you're based in California. I am now based um, in California. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're now based in California. So what what are you up to with the rest of your time? And how do you how do you kind of see that fitting in with your your work as a scholar? So Matt, I'm gonna go ahead and quote your son who asked me this uh this morning, <laughs> what is your job? <laughs> I hope it's okay if I mention this. You can go yeah. ahead and edit this out no, <laughs> if you don't like this. Um, Jeremy is um, a very curious, loquacious young chap. 
Uh, and he is accustomed to asking all sorts of really interesting questions to me and getting answers in conversation. So the first time he asked me, Mary, what is your job? <laughs> I wasn't sure if he really was ready for the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were running around and trying to get places and all that too. So I thought, well, maybe I should answer this question later so I can help him unpack that. Um, but he asked me about three times. <laughs> and finally, he actually just put himself in front of my face and said, what is your job? And I said, most of the time, I am taking care of my mom because she's very ill. So my mom has a medically induced um, brain cancer. And the treatments for that have sapped a lot of her energy and her short-term memory. Um, And they probably account for her uh, vision complications. Um, So my brother and I have both chosen to um, come back to her home and just enjoy the privilege of being with her and serving her. And um, I think I think it's okay for me to speak for my brother on this as well. I think both of us um, are finding and meeting God through this um, in in humbling and in relational ways that uh, we're kind of overdue mm-hmm. to just grow in. It w- we had sort of a similar experience when we um, chose to also come back home to help our mom take care of our grandma in hospice. Hmm. Um, it is different when it's your mom, though, you know? Yeah. It's one thing if it's a grandparent that hmm. that mattered. And my next book, <laughs> mm-hmm. after book number two, is going to be about my relationship with my grandma hmm. um, and some other things. Hmm. Um, but when it's your parent, there, there also is a difference. Hmm. So, You know, I just remembered, uh, I hadn't thought about this in a while, you used to have a business card that... Had oh. <laughs> had a uh, a picture uh, oh w- which I really loved, and I'd never seen anyone with a business card like this. But you had I can't remember all the elements in it, but I think there was a, a wheelchair in the picture on on your business card, and like a f- was it your foot or I can't remember yeah. what else was on there. Yeah, your <laughs> foot. Like what was this? I have different kinds of shoes. Okay, yeah. And, and so this is your wife can appreciate this. <laughs> yeah, but I, I remember what what I liked about that was that, um, well, first of all, it's a very unconventional business card. It is, but but as a way of saying that, like this is my this is my work now, not not in a narrow sense, but in a broad sense of like this is what this is what I'm investing in at this time. Um, and of course, at that time, things your grandmother, and now that wheelchair is your mom. Um, well, she's not that bad at the wheelchair level. Yeah, I mean, okay. that's just, well, well, she, if we're traveling, it's easier. Yeah, when she's no. traveling, yeah, yeah, she, she, she's traveling. I'll do the wheelchair. Yeah. But most of the time, she can. Yeah, but I, I think hobble. that's. I, I just thought that was so cool. Um, so, so okay, well, wait, hang on a sec. But with that, <laughs> yeah, I don't use that card anymore, partly because Grandma's not here anymore. So I used to take my grandma out on dates, yeah, um, just to give her something to look forward to and have fun with. So that's why I'm in a fancy shoe, and there's like this long, you know, silky dress that you kind of kind of see in one corner with a wheelchair on the other end of the corner and this fancy carpet. We were at the Crocker Art Museum. But on the back, um, in grayscale, is another shoe and just this pile of rubble. 
Mm. what looks like just a pile of rubble. But that's a picture of my foot um, walking over the pile of rubble that was left when um, a church was expanding its walls Mm. to accommodate more people Mm. in a not very affluent neighborhood in Zimbabwe. Hmm. So I was visiting Ray and Angela Motsi, who have their own remarkable story, just hmm. incredible. Um, I actually wanted to interview him just because I was, I wanted to know, you know, what was it like when the government put you in prison three times hmm. after rescuing so many people that Mugabe had displaced and all hmm. that kind of thing? Um, when, as you helped lead the other church pastors and, um, you know, helping people find homes and all that kind of stuff. What was it like when, mm-hmm. <laughs> when you were in prison and what was it like for your wife and all that kind of stuff? Um, and he went ahead and just showed me um, some of the churches and introduced me to some of the people and mm. that kind of thing. So that was on the back of the card, but it was in grayscale. So you may not have noticed that. No, I, well, I, I vaguely remember that now, but it, it was the, it was the wheelchair in the photo that really stood out to me. But um, that's more my life. Yeah, that that is more my life. More mm. of my life is domestic in a non-conventional way right now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I want to add that um, I have a debt I feel to um, the biblical scholars and just people of um, Africa, mm. of the church in the broader sense mm-hmm. of Africa. What I've found on my visits there, um, as I talked with um, certain people who. Uh, you know, friends would be like, well, you got to meet this person or, you know, this person, you know, was involved with this or whatever kind yeah. of thing. And I'm like, well, they're still alive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when I asked them, you know, so what are you doing in the church now or whatever? I mean, for example, well, going back to the Matsis, um, Ray Matsi is no longer, you know, at the time, he was no longer the senior pastor of the largest church in his city. But instead... <laughs> He was the president of the theological college there. Mm. He was church planting two churches. He was pastoring two um, poor churches that needed an interim pastor. Uh, you know, he was Dr. Ray Motsi, so he was also teaching. I don't think he had time to do research. Mm-hmm. And then when I asked his wife, Angela, so what, what do you do? She's like, well... I run the chicken ministry, which, if you know Africa, chickens are a big thing. Very helpful. All sorts of things can happen when, like you, when you've got chick- chickens happening. The chicken ministry. The chicken ministry matters. Mm-hmm. Very much so. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I've got this, you know, I oversee, like, the prayer ministry, and then I help out with this, and I help out with that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I think you just listed six things. I was like, you do all this now? <laughs> and she said, we have no choice. You know, the needs are so great. Everyone wears multiple hats. Mm-hmm. And... I said, wow, this is so different from what we have in the West. We're, we're so encouraged to specialize. Um, and you can't, you're, it's assumed that you can't survive in what you're doing unless you specialize. Mm. Whereas in Africa, people have remained, um, they, they still have expertise um, as when they get educated, but they still um, are involved with multiple projects oftentimes and multiple roles. And just the whole um, African, uh, I bet there's an African term for it that I can't think of right now. <laughs> but, uh-huh. but the whole um, sense of integration mm-hmm. um, 
of staying integrated with the community, uh, also just with their internal integration. You know, I mean, for me as a um, Old Testament Hebrew Bible scholar, you know, I, I'm, I'm really into this idea of shalom, and mm-hmm. I feel like with Africa, it helped me um, just uh, experientially uh, appreciate this idea of shalom because I, I could see that, I could feel that um, in how they were doing things and just being around them, mm-hmm. um, and I could see the fruit of that. Um, I remember Andrew Walls telling me before I did any Africa trip that the future of theology is in Africa and Asia. Hmm. And I said, that's a really intriguing statement. Why, why would you say that? And he said, it's because um, they haven't lost the integration with their faith. Hmm. And um, it's just, it, that's a simple statement. Um, it is very true. There's nothing like just going there and seeing it and experiencing it for yourself and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, I'm partly inspired by the example that I've seen. Um, and that I'm aware of the people there. Um, I will, I will never, I, I, I will probably never, ever, um, reach what they do. I mean, there's a humility to it. There's a strange ordinariness to it. There is a great worship in how they um, do scholarship in community and holistically, um, but it's beautiful and it's inspiring. What, what are some of the effects of that in, in their scholarship? So it affects their scholarship. What does that look like? It looks like a scholarship that tends to get expressed in terms of, you know, words on the page, um, more um, lay-oriented writings. Hmm. So people get training where they could be writing commentaries, articles, monographs, Hmm. um, but they remain so connected with the church that um, they just are intent, rightly, of raising up the next generation and equipping the people so they tend to go into teaching or pastoring. Hmm. Um, And that just takes up so much time because the need is so great. Hmm. Um, So being able to do research, it's, it's more a time matter kind of thing. Um, so I think it's more practical work, um, more just natural involvement with social issues because social justice issues and social issues, because you can't get away from those needs right. in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you do get among like more formal, so to speak, biblical scholars in Africa, um, more research. And it's interesting because it does tend to be associated these days with, uh, you know, post-colonialism, <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. African hermeneutics. Um, and I certainly do not want to deny the value of considering these perspectives. Mm. But I think even more, uh, you get you get a perspective and a scholarship that, I'm speaking so generally here, that generally is more sensitive to power dynamics, mm-hmm. to integration and disintegration um, that usually more readily embraces concepts regarding uh, the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And so it can just move mm-hmm. on to other topics because that's already um, assumed by 
the researcher and the audience. Um, those uh, so many generalisms, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you get the idea. Yeah, that's helpful. It'd probably be better to ask an, an African scholar. So, my uncle Nesmus Ngundu. Yeah. All <laughs> I right. call my uncle. Get him on sometime. Sounds good. Thanks, Mary. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.